Danny, I appreciate you putting all those songs together. I thank you for singing servants and everybody else joining in and making worship uh, meaningful and vibrant. We had to sing that song because we're looking at the greatest commands. It's the, it's the thing you have to do. I mean, when you're doing this text, you have to sing that song. And I was telling Danny this week that, you know, I think that song is starting to become the new 728B. See, now some of you get that, but some of you are like, what's he talking about? You know, well, that's how you know that your roots are COC, because uh, 728B was always the most popular song, Our God, He is Alive, back there in the back of the book. I don't know why it had a B on it, you know, but it was pasted in. Yeah, it got pasted in, it was so popular. Now that we don't have, you know, songbooks that we really use anymore, we don't have a number for this song. So we just call it The Greatest Commands, and, uh, but it is. It's an excellent workout song for our singing tradition, too, uh, because it identifies all the parts, and if to you parts are parts, then just jump in wherever you can. So got myself in trouble, first of all, by saying that that could be the next 728B. Now I'm going to get myself in trouble again by talking about Fight Club. Yeah. Yeah, not only because it's against the rules, but because it just doesn't seem to apply. You know, that's the thing. You, you'll hear people say, you know, the first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club, and then they just stop there. Truth is, there's eight rules to Fight Club. You know, I'm talking about the movie, and, you know, there, there's, there's eight rules. And, and, and everybody seems to have forgotten that. And then the first two rules are you do not talk about Fight Club. Rule number two, you do not talk about Fight Club, as if, Somehow saying that twice emphasizes it, and then that's all anybody remembers. Using a Calvacomer from the lesser to greater argument, and if you're in my class on Sunday morning, you know what I'm talking about, I wish that we would get that same locked-in understanding of how these two rules are really all that matters, the same way everybody forgets the other six rules of Fight Club, in popular culture and just focuses on those two because all the rules of Fight Club are really meaningless because there is no Fight Club, not only because you deny it, but because it's a work of fiction. But I wish that we could somehow understand that these two statements, these two commandments that Jesus gives, this is what matters most. I I think there's a, a growing sense of that. I think there has been. But as I want to help us understand this morning I think Jesus wants us to really embrace and practice these greatest commandments but I wonder if you're even familiar with what they are well then for the record let's hear let's read the words in red I think they are significant because they show up in three of the gospels they show up in Mark 12 Jesus' words will be in red, but there's narrative that goes around this. One of the scribes, one of the experts of the law, approached. When he heard Jesus and the other Pharisees and scribes debating, he saw that Jesus had answered them well, and so he asked, which command is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, listen Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command 
greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Here's an expert, here's a scribe that agrees with Jesus. Now in all of history, this this guy, standing where he is, is in a unique place. Because when when he actually gets to say Jesus is right, it's like he's, he's endorsing Jesus. I like what this young man's saying, I agree. I mean, most of us accept it because he's the Lord. Here he's saying, I see wisdom in this, this teacher is correct. Well, thank you. Thank you. Jesus saw that he answered wisely and he said, you are not far from the kingdom. And then no one dared ask him a question any longer. Well, that's because this was the end of a period of testing that Mark talks about where Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem and all the religious experts and all the religious leaders have come to pepper him with these little questions. The controversial, debatable issues. Things like, saw what you did up there in the temple. Who gave you the authority to do that? Why do you get to come in and knock over the tables? Where's your authority come from? They got to pepper him with questions like, oh, well, here's a good one for you. Let's talk about the politics of the day. What about taxes, Jesus? You're supposed to pay your taxes to Caesar or not? Is that a good thing? Is that a godly thing or not? They pepper him with questions like, Whose wife is she in the resurrection? She's been married seven times and she goes to heaven. She lives in the resurrection and there she is and she's got all these seven chaps who claim to be her husband. Now, how's that one going to work, Jesus? And if you stop and think about it, as much as we appreciate the teaching here, those are some of the most inane questions that you could be asking the Son of God. Especially that last one. Jesus says, in fact, to that one about the resurrection, and we always launch to his logical answer. Well, you see, it's the resurrection. They don't marry in the resurrection. Pay attention. Jesus said, you know, you ask questions like that because you don't understand Scripture. He's saying, you do that. You ask those kind of questions because you don't know how to handle the Word of God. And when that happens, we ask those kind of ridiculous questions. So finally, this expert steps up and he says, what's the greatest commandment then? In other words, what's the, what, are, what is the commandment that unlocks all the others? And it's what Jesus just said, and it allows him to say, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Same idea in, in Matthew uh, 22, where in this case, Jesus says it like this, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and prophets depend on these two commands. Okay, that's the same sense that the expert told Jesus. To say the law and the prophets is to say Scripture. Keep in mind, they don't carry around books like this where everything's contained in it. They carry around scrolls. You have the scrolls of the law. You have the scrolls of the prophets. This is Bible for them. 
Yes, there are other writings, but law and prophets is sufficient to say Scripture. So Jesus says all the rest of Scripture depends on, is dependent on, it's connected to these two commandments at the core. It's true. I mean, it works that way. These are the main thing. It's based on Deuteronomy 6, 5. That's love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind, with all of your, your whole being, loving God. And Leviticus 19, 18, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. That's how it's often expressed. That scribe in Mark's gospel said that's more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. What is he talking about? He's saying that loving God and loving others is really the reason behind all of the activity that we do. The burnt offering, the sacrifices, the singing, the communing, all these commands, all of these commands that we have for worship are ultimately about love for God and love for one another. This is true of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are summed up in these two. Now think about it. The Ten Commandments, no other gods. Why? Because we love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Second Commandment, no idols. Why? Because we love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Not just because it's rude, not just because it gets you in trouble in school, but because we love the Lord, our God, with all of our strength, soul, heart, mind. His name is precious to us. Love, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Why? Because we love God. And then you have the other six. Honor your parents. Why? Because we love our neighbor as ourselves. We love others just as God loves us. Don't kill. Why? Just because killing's wrong? No, because we love others. And that's not a very loving thing to do. Don't commit adultery because we love others. Don't steal because we love others. Don't lie because we love others. Lying is not loving. And don't covet what they have because we love them more than we love their stuff. See, all of these commandments hinge and are summed up in these two, the main thing. Well, it ought to be that simple, right? You know this. Why do we keep talking about it? Because the capacity of even the most intelligent of us to want to qualify these is astounding. And that's where Luke's version of Jesus reporting on this greatest commandment comes in. In Luke 10. These might have been different occasions. That's, that's very likely because the narrative seems to flow differently. But you can be sure that Jesus says the same thing every time he's asked this. Here, an expert in the law stands up to test Jesus. Certainly not as charitable as the scribe in Mark chapter 12. His question is, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice he's not asking for the greatest commandment. But he is implying, you know, I guess if I can do this, then you know, eternal life is mine, correct? Well, Jesus answers with a question. What's written in the law? How do you read it? 
Now, why would Jesus say that? Well, the guy has a badge on that says, expert in the law. You know, I mean, somehow Jesus recognizes who he is. You show me. You show me the cut of your jib before I'm going to do that. What would you say? We're going to have a little discussion here. So the expert is the one who says the greatest commandments. Here, these are not the words in red. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength and all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He's working out of the same playbook. He's working out of the same law and prophets. Jesus says, you've answered that correctly. Do this, and you'll live. Now, once again, that ought to be the end of it. That ought to, that just simply, Jesus says, okay, do this. I like your answer. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Oh, oh, I see. We're going to have to parse words. See, that didn't last long enough. This guy was geared up for a big, long debate. He wanted to kind of trap Jesus into a logic corner or to bring up this Scripture or that Scripture or to move a certain direction. Jesus ends it pretty quickly and says, I like your answer, do it, you'll live. Okay, can we move on? Oh, wait, 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 Jesus. How do you define neighbor? Because how you define neighbor, it really matters. And this is where Jesus says, okay, we're going to need a parable. And it's the parable that we've come to know as the Good Samaritan, where the word good is never in there regarding the Samaritan. And that's understandable when you understand just how much the people of Jerusalem despised the Samaritans. it's It's a fair guess that when... Jesus says, love your neighbor. Most of the hearers in Jerusalem are saying, right, but not Samaritans. Because we're not even sure that they're human beings, right? We're not, I mean, they're, they're so wrong. They're so wrong, no way. There's a lot of hate built up between the two groups. And they both worked at it for a very long time. That's why Jesus chooses the Samaritan and places him in the parable where he does. Now, what you may not know about this parable, and you may have heard it many times, is that it does follow on the heels of this religious test. So listen carefully to the parable. And remember, the question going into it is, who's my neighbor? All right, this parable is the response to that question. It's going to answer that question, or so we think. Jesus took up the question and he said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him. Bandages his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own ride, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. 
Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert says, the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus told him, go and do the same. Now, once you stop and think about that for a second, in, in my experience, we usually think that the answer to the parable is, oh, my neighbor is whoever needs my help. Sort of. But really, the question, who then is my neighbor, is never answered. You see, the expert in the law wants to adjust the main thing a little bit. He wants to take the main thing and put some qualifiers on it. He wants to tack some amendments on there. Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.18, love God, love your neighbor, but be sure and define neighbor. I mean, it is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. All the law and the prophets depend on these two, but it really only applies to genuine neighbors. So let's spend some time talking about what neighbors are. That's the way the expert in the law wants to do it. That is not the way I encourage us to do it. But they would put little asterisks on everything and say Samaritans, among others, were hardly considered neighbors. See, there's a twist in this parable, and it's a big twist. It's like one of those upside-down roller coasters. I, can you remember the time that you first rode an upside-down roller coaster? Hold on to that memory because I don't want that to be the only thing that you leave here with today and then everybody's telling me about all the roller coasters they've been on. I want you to remember that so that you remember, wow, that was quite the experience. It wasn't just some kid roller coaster that went up and down, up and down, up and down. It went upside down and I thought I was going to die. Okay, you need to hear this parable in just such a way that it has turned you upside down. Because the pre-parable question was, who is my neighbor? The post-parable question changes. Who proved to be a neighbor? I should have put the camera icon on this because this is the one I want you to take the picture of. You see, Jesus ends up at the end of the parable and he's just turned everybody upside down and he says, you don't get to ask who's my neighbor. You get to choose to be a neighbor. That's what love your neighbor as yourself means. It's not about, is that the kind of person I need to love? Is this the sort of person I need to love? How far do I have to go? It's about doing. You'll remember that twice Jesus said to the man, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live. What part of do this and you will live did the man not understand? He's taking it from love being an active verb, something you do, and he's changing it into a thing that is limited in its capacity. Well, Jesus, I only have this much love. I mean, I can't love everybody, so I better just distribute it out to neighbors first. And then, you know, those Samaritans, you're not asking me to love them. I mean, because they're, they're not my neighbors, so I don't have to love them, right? Watch out when we find ourselves doing that, church. Because when we're doing that, we're misunderstanding love. We're, we're treating love as if it's a thing, as, as if it's an affection, as if it's an emotion, as if it's some sort of uh, feeling or sense or maybe even a scriptural boundary 
And instead, what we're ignoring is Jesus twice has said, do this, do this. So that when he asks him, now who proved to be a neighbor? Who was a neighbor? And the man says, the one that demonstrated mercy, the one that demonstrated compassion. And it wasn't just talk. I mean, he took his own provisions and healed the man's wounds. He took two days' wages and took care of the man. He bothered. He got involved. That's, that's the neighbor. And Jesus says, now you go and do the same. Do. Do the same. Do what the parable twists us into doing. So, do this and you will live. That's the answer to the question of eternal life. And then after the parable, he's got the man right back. He's got us right back where we need to be. Now you go and do the same. So my question to us is not just have we read the words in red, but are you doing the words in red? That's why we read them. We read them so that we might do them. And now I want you to hear this again. And ask yourself, how shall I do this? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the greatest, most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the basis of evangelism. That when we love God, it shows up in our lives. When we love others, they're bound, if it's a genuine Christ-like love, they're bound to ask why. You know, our team's going uh, back to Bulgaria in a few weeks. And one of the things that we know about Bulgaria over, is that often the people would say, because they don't, they don't love their country. They don't love themselves very much. There's, there's a lot of historical reasons for that. But they say, why would you come over here and really waste time on us. The greatest commandments. Love God. Love your neighbor. And that can be stunning. And you don't have to go to Bulgaria to do that, okay? You may be amazed, but again, doing this, putting this into practice, that is eternal life. That is living out the eternal life. When you love God, God is real to people. When you love your neighbor, once again, God is real to people. It's not just a feather in your cap. It's the demonstration of the power of God. As we come around the Lord's Supper table this morning, we're aware of this. Now remember, we do this in remembrance of Him. Jesus gave us that commandment but Jesus also said that all the other commandments now I know law and prophets that's Old Testament but all the other commandments hang on those two so I'm going to suggest that Jesus wasn't just tacking an amendment on there like he was trying to tell the expert but in some way when we partake of the Lord's Supper we are demonstrating our love. We're doing it and we're remembering Him because of our love for God. And the reason, as we've learned in these last few years, 
Taking this communion together is so important because when we come together in peace around His table, we are demonstrating love for one another. That's why we bother to make this a together experience. We will focus on that love of God this morning. Let's sing our way to the Lord's Supper table. If you would, please stand.